For our scripture reading this afternoon, we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and 6. The first parts of both of those chapters. Deuteronomy 5, Moses called all Israel. He said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us who are here today, all of us who are alive. The Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid to, uh, afraid because of the fire, you did not go up to the mountain. And now turn over to chapter 6. <clears throat> Starting at verse 1. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that you may observe them in the land which you're crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. And therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, when you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. This ends our, our scripture reading. We have a couple of readings from what we confess the scriptures to say. And I've taken two, uh, two passages out of uh, the catechism. One of them is from Lord's Day 2, so it's early in the catechism. It's asking about the law. Uh, but we see the law also in... Uh, the last part of the catechism, which is about thankfulness. So uh, I'm going to start at question and answer four. This would be on page 872 in the hymn book if you want to 
to follow that. What does God's law require of us? Well, Christ teaches, uh, teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the, all the law and the prophets. And number five, can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And the catechism goes on to talk about how we are saved by grace in Christ. And... Uh, we come back to the law of God uh, and in Lord's Day 44. <clears throat> I'll read the whole Lord's Day. What is God's will for you in the 10th commandment? That not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should even ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. And again, there's that question. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. And since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. And second, that we may never stop striving, never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. So our text is going to be Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, and I will refer to that as we go through the sermon. So congregation beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ, our topic this afternoon is love. And love is fundamental to any relationship. The closer the relationship is, the deeper the love would be. Right? We're supposed to love all our neighbors, but the love you have for the checkout person at the store is different from the love that a husband and wife have for each other at home because there's a deeper relationship there. Well, the closest relationship we have is our relationship with God. And the deepest love is the love that belongs to that relationship. In the Garden of Eden, before there was any sin, God made man in his own image. And God is love. And therefore, he created man to love, to love God as well. When Adam and Eve committed their first sin, they destroyed their loving relationship with God. But God stepped in to restore it. He promised a redeemer, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. Now Christ's redemption from sin is pictured for us in different ways in scripture, and one way is pulling God's people out of Egypt, the land of bondage and slavery to sin. This was to be the bringing his people out to free them for a loving relationship with him. But after he brought them out, 
God found their love for him to be lacking. He even said for their many infidelities, he was going to bar them from entering the promised land. Well, now we come to our passage, which is 40 years later. And again, they are at the entrance to the promised land. This question of love is going to come up again. There's a new generation that has grown up, but really there is the same question. Do you love God for what he's done for you? That is the question that comes up here. The fathers did not enter for lack of love. What will happen now? So this is a turning point in Israel's history. It's a very significant uh, juncture that they're at, a significant point that they're at. And that makes this passage a very important passage. The Jews, uh, this passage about you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. The Jews, hear, O Israel, that was their primary, most important passage. Jesus acknowledged it as important as well. We read it this morning with the summary of the law. So if it's so important, we should understand what it means. It should be important to us. It should engage our attention. What is this love? What does it look like? Where does it come from? What does it result in? These sorts of questions come up. If it's such an important matter, such an important passage, we want to answer questions. So that's what we will try to do this afternoon. Our theme is going to be a singular love for God. And we're going to take the verses in sequence. Our first point is verse 4. It's going to be uh, the object of that love. And then verse 5, the nature of that love for God. And then verses 6 and following, the nurture of that love for God. So we begin with the object of this love that's being spoken of here. Verse 4 begins with this repetition, Hear, O Israel. Again, underlining, this is very important, and what we should not do is skip verse 4 and go to verse 5. Verse 5 has the command, but hear, O Israel, and hearing doesn't just mean with the ears, but it means to respond with your whole being. Hear, O Israel, what? The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Well, the Lord is the covenant name of God. This is the name God used when he revealed himself to, to Moses at the burning bush. It always was his name, but he used it especially when he re was revealing himself as the one who remembers his old promises to save. So he had given promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would bring the people out and enter them, uh, carry them into the promised land. And now God was acting on that. He reveals himself under this name of the Lord. Well, today we worship Jesus Christ, the revelation of God, and we call him the Lord for the same reason because the Lord remembered his old promises to save and came in the person of Jesus to fulfill those promises so this is the Lord and we should understand this is not Old Testament versus New Testament the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God this is 
Jesus Christ speaking here. It is the voice of your Savior who is speaking here in Deuteronomy 6. Now it says he is our God. First of all, he is God. He showed he's God by overcoming the gods of the Egyptians, other, the gods of other nations that got in their way. But he says the Lord is our God. And it's a funny thing in relationships when you use possessive terms because who belongs to whom? Children say, these are my parents. Parents say, these are my children. And this is what it's referring to here. The Lord is our God. What does that mean? It means the Lord owns us. The Lord has taken ownership of us. He redeemed a nation for himself out of Egypt. He took ownership. He made himself their God and then his people, and he provided for them. He carried them on his, uh, on, like on eagle's wings, so to speak, as a father carries his son through the desert. So this is their uh, relationship. He is their God. And you should take a minute to think about this. To whom is he speaking? Because God made this covenant at Mount Sinai. He made a covenant with a body of people, but everybody older than 20 years of age has died. Now a new generation has grown up. Those that were anywhere from infants to teenagers at that time, they're now in their 40s to late 50s. There's a whole new generation of people. So even when God did all his mighty acts, he brought Israel out. The only ones left from that time were infants and teenagers at the time. But still, what does he say? The Lord, our God. And that's part of the reason I read uh, back in chapter 5, verse 2. The Lord, our God, made a covenant with us in Horeb. Horeb was Mount Sinai. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us who are here today. In other words, it's not just about them, it's about us too. God made a people for himself. And when those people have children, then those people also are the Lord's. So God extends his covenant through families. So by a wonderful provision, God continues to be their God, even though now a new generation has grown up and they have the same fundamental needs as, uh, as their fathers did. The need to have their sins forgiven by faith in Christ. But this is how we know that the Lord is our God. Because through the generations, God has taken those with faith and included their children in his covenant and brought them to faith in himself. So today we say the Lord our God, even of us, not just Israel so many thousands of years ago. Now the last point in, uh, in this verse is that the Lord is one. There's one God. God made that clear. He got rid of the gods of the Egyptians, but there are different ways of looking at the oneness of God. It's not just how many do you count? I only count one. But think about it. They're here at the entrance to the promised land. The God of 40 years ago 
is still their God today. He does not change over time because God is one God. The God who delivered them from Egypt is also the God in this place at the brink of entering the promised land. So God is God in every place. This is part of the oneness of God. No matter where you go, no matter when you ask the question, there is one God. Now this is time and place, and we could say in a sense are beneath God. He created time. He created space. Uh, so this is how he can be the only God in every place and every time. And what it does mean for us is that God has purposes that extend and that, that are eternal. And if he makes us his one day, he does not disown us the next day. And if he, we are his in this place, then he doesn't disown us when we go to some other place. So because the Lord is one, and because he is your God, by taking hold of you in love in Jesus Christ, then we have two things really that are true. Because he has an eternal good purpose for us, you could say. The flip side of that is that for us, there is now a calling. There is an eternal life to live, which is not a life that is dead to God, but a life that is now alive to God. And that is an eternal life. And that is because God is one. Now, these are a little bit mind-bending things to talk about the oneness of God because it's different from us when we count people and things like that that's different than God being one because God is one in this really comprehensive way but when we begin to meditate on it and understand it it leads us to worship God for who he is he is one in a fantastic way and he uses that oneness to reach out in a unity of love for us, an unchangeable love for us in Jesus Christ. So this is what the object of our love is. It is God who loves us in a unified way in Jesus Christ. And this leads to a response, which is our second point. The command to love the Lord your God is based on this oneness of God's love for you. If he loves you the same way in every time and every place, let's say very constantly and unchangeably, that calls for a oneness of love in response to him. I'm going to use a couple of uh, uh, verses to illustrate this. The love reserved for him should not be given to any other. Psalm 86 has this prayer, to unite my heart to fear your name. That means... Make my heart one. Don't let it be divided. Or if you look at James 1, the double-minded person. That is the opposite of what God is calling here. It's the opposite of loving God with all your heart and mind. The double-minded person has two minds on the topic. He might love God when he's in church. He might love God when the sermon's fantastic. Uh, but when he's by himself, looking at pictures on his phone... Maybe he loves an idol. 
So a unified love for God. That is what Deuteronomy calls for here and again and again. And we can look at verses 12 through 14 that we read in chapter 6. We can look at that as a bit of a commentary on verse 5. Verse 12, beware that you don't forget the Lord. Verse 13, fear him, serve him, take oaths in his name. That means don't be divided. You have only one God. Verse 14, don't go after other gods. So this is an interpretation that scripture is giving. What does this mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind? Put the emphasis here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Yeah, all your heart and soul and mind means it's comprehensive. But the question is, whom do you love? Do you love the Lord? Do you love an idol? Okay, I have to um, deal with a couple of possible misinterpretations because you can put the emphasis on love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And some people feel guilty if they've gone to bed and they say, I still have strength. I didn't love God with all my strength. That's not where the emphasis is here. The point is that your heart and soul and mind, they all need to be dedicated to the Lord. It's not a matter of exhausting yourself. It's a matter of what is the direction that they're used? As much as they're used, for whom are they used? And of course, we cannot be idle, but how are they used? The other is there may be a thought that in order to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength, you need to push other things out. This is what uh, some people in the early centuries after Christ did. They, it's the origin of monasteries, actually. They went out in the, into, the, into the wilderness. They said goodbye to everything and everyone. And they tried to just serve God on their own. And what they found is, uh, ultimately, they came to realize there are still idols when you're by yourself. And in fact, serving God with all your heart and soul and strength does not mean denying work, family, ordinary life. We see this in verse 2 of our passage. It's talking about you and your son and your grandson. You can't have sons and grandsons without loving your wife and loving your children and having a job uh, providing for your family. This is all consistent with loving God with your heart and soul and strength because the point is who is your God? As you love your family, as you love your children, your wife, your grandchildren, as you do your work, who is your God? Are you serving an idol or are you serving the Lord? That is the contrast here. And we can see that this is the meaning. I'm just going to take a few more examples. Uh, Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 4, a prophet. Uh, this a passage about testing prophets when a prophet has made a prediction and it comes true, he seems to check out as a genuine prophet, but if he tries to call God's people to go after other gods, God's people are not to listen, 
Why? The Lord is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Same language as Deuteronomy 6.5. So if you love God with all your heart and soul, you don't turn aside to idols. The object of your love is God. That is what it is saying. So no matter how persuasive somebody is, you don't serve the idol, you serve God. There's a unity in your love for God. And there are other examples um, I could refer to where God says, I'm going to scatter my people if they serve idols, but if they love me with all their heart and soul, which means putting away their idols, I'm going to receive them back. So this commandment is about loving the one God, for sure, but loving only the one God. Loving him in a unified way, in a consistent way. Loving him with integrity, without hypocrisy, with a singleness of mind and heart. That's what this commandment is about. Now we've seen before that uh, our love for God actually has its foundation in God, God himself. God is not just the object of our love, he's the, uh, the origin of our love. And we see Jesus in the New Testament, the person who's forgiven much, loves much, right? The sinner who is wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, loves Jesus much because she has been forgiven much. And Jesus can talk to the unbelieving Pharisees nearby and say, isn't this true, that this is how it is? And they say, yes, it is. Isn't it natural that everyone who has been redeemed to the Lord our God from death and destruction would love the Lord our God with a heartfelt, consistent love and devotion? There is no other Savior from death, so whom else would we love? Of course we would love him. Do we? Now I'd like to point out from verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God. Isn't it odd that God commands his people to love him? He commands his people to do the thing that should be, objectively speaking, the most natural thing in the world. Why would that be necessary? Why does he have to command? The problem is, God's redeemed people are still sinners. They can go astray, like lost sheep. And the problem is so serious, they can easily forget where their salvation lies. And God drives his people back to their only Savior, back to himself, for their good, for your good. That's God's lead in in verse 3. Be careful to observe this that it may go well with you. If you turn to idols, there is no salvation there. There is nothing good there. There's nothing that will help you there. Nothing that will bless you there. Nothing that will glorify God there with an idol. Jesus taught there's only one way to the Father. It's through himself. Why did he teach this? So no one 
would deceive himself thinking that any other way, any idol, could do them any good. There is one God and Savior. You need to love that one God and Savior. And what's the reality when you examine yourself? You discover there's still a divided mind. There's still a divided heart in me. Not that single unity that's devoted to God. The sin nature, the old self, the one that loves idols and wants to forget God, he tries to take over and you need to deny. Deny that to him. Say no to him. Kill him off. So the new self can live without competition, without division, because God is calling for singleness of love for him. That is what is needed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. So again, as we heard this morning, also now a call to spiritual battle against yourself. And the Lord has given the means to win the battle. The spirit of Christ convicts you of your idols. He helps you to identify them through the word. He reminds you of the blood of Christ by which you're cleansed from your sin. He leads you to ask for forgiveness. And he reminds you of the promises of God. And I'm going to name one from Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 because it's very specific here. To, to circumcise the heart, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul so that you may live. So the Spirit helps you find ways to put those idols away and to insert a love for God in their place. Cultivating that renewed love for God. He helps you plead to God for help. The Spirit does that. He will help you to love the Lord. And if I could summarize it, he will help you to have the natural response that you would expect to have. So he will help you to be a real person again. Someone with proper feelings who properly responds to God. So the Lord, we should not forget, the Lord is one. He redeemed you from your, from your sins and that was not to leave you, not to change his mind and abandon you when you're in trouble. He is one. He continues to have his ears open to your cry. He continues to be your savior and redeemer. I'm going to make one other minor point about this. It's not minor, it's major. This command is critical. The command to love the Lord your God. In the New Testament, the promises of life are attached to loving the Lord your God. James 1.12, the crown of life is for those who love the Lord. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those who love God. In 1 Corinthians, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither entered into the heart of man. The things that God has prepared for them that love him. Love, loving God is indispensable. And you can see why that is. Loving God means holding on to the only one who gave you life. 
Anyone who turns away from him to idols will find those idols do not deliver on their promises. Don't even consider that for a minute. Instead, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. Well, if this is such a critical matter, such an imperative, then you have this question, how do you hold on in love for God? And it's interesting, just as God's people need to be told to love God, they also need to be told how to love God. And that leads us to our third point now, and that is the nurture of our love for God. God's love is rooted in his unchanging grace to make you his. A proper response is unified, consistent love for him. And now the nurture of that love is by teaching. Love for God results in a love of his word, a desire to be taught his word. And we know from ordinary experience, if you love someone, you love to hear what they have to say. You want to understand their thoughts. Understand what they have to communicate to you. This is the same for God. When we love God, we want to hear what he has to say. But there's more in the case of loving God because we don't even know exactly how to love God. What pleases God? When we have distorted and warped souls, how do we know what is going to please God? So we're not just interested in what God has to say. We need what God has to say. And loving God involves following his directions in how to love him. He reveals those directions. They are commandments is another word for it. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In Deuteronomy, that association is made over and over again as well. So in verses 6 to 9, the Lord directs his people, fill your life with my word. In verse 6, what he commands must be in your heart. To love the Lord your God with your heart means the word of God must be in your heart. The heart must be instructed in how to love God. There's no other way. Verse 6 is pretty specific. These words, these words that I uh, command you, not vague notions. He calls for you to take in the words he speaks and meditate on the words he speaks. Consider the meaning of the words he speaks and act on the words he speaks. And this is self-teaching, isn't it? This meditation, it's self-instruction. You learn to love God by learning the words God speaks and applying them. There's only so much a pastor can do for you. He can't help you to think over the sermon when it's done. He can't regularly memorize, <coughs> memorize the word of God for you. He can't meditate on the word of God for you. He can't really... When you come down to it, he can't do much to give you a love for God because he cannot embed the word of God in your life. That is for you to do with the help of the spirit of God. 
It's very important to do because that teaching, I don't want to say a pastor is not going to do anything for you. Of course you want one for a reason. Don't want to be insensitive there. It's very important to do, though, that teaching is carried on to the next generation through your efforts. The Lord is one, and his people also should be one. The Lord doesn't change over time. His people should believe and love him without changing over time. From one generation to the next, they should understand God is their Savior. They are his. They need to love and serve him. And therefore, in verse 7, you need to diligently teach your children the word. The word belongs to the children as much as to the, ch as much as to the parents. And the children need someone who will uh, represent their best interest to help them understand it. Someone who will present it to them on their level. So parents, you may be happy to have the word taught in preaching and at Christian schools or homeschooling, at catechism classes, at church. All these are helpful. The point of verse 7 is the home life. School teachers, catechism teachers, they are there when your household wakes up, when it goes to bed, when it's sitting down, when it's walking in the road, as this verse describes. And that means parents, you need to be the ones who speak of these things, especially to your children. Who has their best interest at heart, the best interest of your children? It's not the school teacher. It's not even the pastor. It's their parents. And therefore, in the wisdom of God, who is responsible to teach the next generation how to love God from his word? It is their parents. And think about the situation here in the wilderness. The previous generation died. These parents would not want that for their children. They would warn their children, you need to love the Lord with all your heart and soul. Don't go aside to idols. Don't murmur and pine after what the world has to offer. You need to love the Lord. Wouldn't you expect that? Wouldn't it be natural for these, these people who had grown up watching their parents die in the wilderness? Wouldn't that motivate them? You would think so. Once again, it's plain. The Lord needs to command his people to do the thing that should be the most natural. To teach their children how to fear and love God. Now the word to teach means to put a fine edge on something. That's what the words derive from. It means making distinctions. It means clarifying things that need clarifying. It means making, uh, being able to answer questions. So this implies a few things for those of you who are parents. It implies you need to be learners for yourself. So you will be equipped to be teachers to your children. It implies you need to have regular times with your children. 
could be wake-up time, bedtime, sit time, walk time. Regular times where you are speaking about these things, all these things, not just your favorite things, but these things that the Lord has spoken. Knowing our fallen nature and order or system for this is a good idea, so we don't fall off it. This is why the elders are pleased to see that the custom of scripture reading is done in the home, and that's best done with some explanation, so there will be understanding and hopefully some discussion as well. Children. You are children of your parents. You see, this is God's command. It's for your parents to teach you. To instruct you in these things. This is God's will for you. So you can help them. You can help them. You can make it easier for them. Listen carefully. When they're trying to teach you something, it's not time to uh, complain. You'd like a few extra minutes of playtime because... Uh, you know, that's more fun. These are God's important commandments that your parents are fulfilling for you to teach you. You can ask thoughtful questions of your parents. You can try to understand what they are teaching. Why does God think this is so important? You can try to understand that. You can try to open up your mind to understand the greatness of the things that God is laying in front of you through your parents. It's a way to remove Sin, that sin that makes you feel so awful and a way to live a new life that has no regrets in it. This is what your parents are trying to teach you that the Lord wants you to learn. Well, overall families, the passage goes on to talk about the word on the doorposts, on the gates, binding the word to your hands, frontlets between your eyes, Frontlets, nobody knows what that means, I think. Uh, but these all speak about not being able to get away from the word. Because the great concern, as verse 12 says, is forgetting the Lord. We're inclined to go astray. We need reminders. So whatever your eyes see, whatever your hands do, whenever you go out your gates, whenever you come back in through your doorposts, the word should be there to remind you of what God has done and how he wants you to live in love and freedom for him. Well, by now, you're thinking, I have failed. Well, what if you fail? And what if your children fail? What if you fail? God has commandments for that as well, doesn't he? He doesn't allow you to live in your sin, to be burdened by your sin. He commands you, repent, believe the gospel. He wants you to find forgiveness through the blood of Christ and start again. Free yourself from that sin and start again because the Lord is not a taskmaster from Egypt. He's brought his people out and he freely, 
forgives all who humbly confess their sin to him and who seek to live a godly life. The Lord is so good that even in his commands, he commands you to do that thing which we need over and over, and that is to return to him and find forgiveness from him. There's one last thing here, and that is when God brought his people out of Egypt, he vividly showed by signs and wonders that he was God. And that generation that died in the wilderness, they had no reason to doubt who God was or his power to save, how worthy he was of their affection. They had no reason to doubt it. They had seen it. And even so, they forgot it. It became a faded memory. And in ordinary life, as Israel went through their life, this new generation, they hadn't seen those signs and wonders. The only sign they have is the sign that God showed them in his word. That God reminded them. And this is why they were to bind it as a sign on their hand, as verse 8 says. They had to incorporate God's word in all they did. And this is how it is for us, congregation. God's greatest sign and wonder was judging your sin on the cross of Christ so you could be free. That happened a long time ago. We don't see that directly. We don't have the physical memory of it. We have the record of it in the word. That is our sign. And the Lord says, bind this as a sign on your hand. It was to be this way for Israel, also for you. Christ died for you. The word speaks to it. He died to you so you could free your hands to serve him. So you could love him with what you do. Those freed hands, no longer under the power of Satan, are a sign also to this generation of the power of the love of God, a love which, in the mercy of God, may many come to acknowledge and seek. Wherever you go, let the word of God guide you. Whatever you do, let the word of God guide you that there is one God, one object of your love above all others. There should not be an idol. God is uniquely yours. You are uniquely his. We need to live as if that were true. So this is the commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He doesn't change. He loves consistently and truly. Hear, O Israel, you must love your, the Lord your God in the same way, by his grace. And, O Israel, hear, the word must fill your family life to draw you to God. Well, may God grow your love for him as by his word and spirit, he continues to call out of you from generation to generation that natural response we talk about, that we love someone who has so greatly loved us first. The Lord promises it will be well with us if we love him. May he so fill our lives. Amen.
Let us pray. Father in heaven, you have loved us with an everlasting love, and it's a wonderful thing to, uh, to know that love, to be reminded of that love, to be reminded of uh, how uniquely loved we are and how your love is an everlasting love, that you took thought of us from before the foundation of the world, that we should be uh, holy and without blame before you in Jesus Christ, that you have loved us and by the work of your spirit, you've brought us to yourself. And we pray that that work would not stop, that it would continue as you've promised it would. Lord, we are dependent on your spirit. Uh, we are dependent on the grace that you've shown in your son. And we need to live by that love every day and exhibit our proper response to that love. We confess that what is natural, what we call natural, is not so natural for us. Uh, it's, work, it's a work of your spirit to bring about that response in us we ought to have. We pray that your spirit will work mightily in us to your glory and for our good because you've said here that Israel ought to keep these commands that it may go well with them. As we glorify you, we will enjoy uh, the good things from you, your blessing, and you will be glorified. Lord, will you make it so?